Good morning, everyone. Happy Easter. You know, there's a tradition uh, that has taken place in the church for a really long time that in gatherings uh, like this, when we come together to celebrate the resurrection, you're greeted with uh, Jesus Christ is risen. And you respond by saying, he is risen indeed. Now, a lot has changed in our world. Uh, this is actually the first time in 18 years of following Jesus that on, on Resurrection Sunday, on Easter Sunday morning, my family's going to be um, staying home. And uh, like many of you, probably wearing our PJs and getting up and a little bit more of a relaxed thing. And, and I got to tell you, if I'm being really honest, these last four to five weeks have been really, really hard for me. Um, I, I love preaching. I really do. Uh, but I really love being a pastor. And I want you to know from me to you, I, I really miss you. I miss being here together. I miss being in between services as much as I miss being together even in this room here. But what hasn't changed is that Jesus is still Lord. Jesus still came to this earth and he lived the life that we couldn't live, a perfect sinless life. That he died the death that we deserved to die and he defeated death and resurrected. And so though we can't be in person today, we can celebrate what unites us nonetheless. And that is that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so with joy and expectation of meeting together again and, and really out of a deep love, I say to you this Easter Sunday morning, Jesus Christ is risen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning that all around the world, meeting in homes all around the world, we, we are gathered together to celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And God, I am so grateful that though this virus has caused all kinds of trouble and pain and sorrow, the one thing this virus is powerless to do is to put Jesus back in the grave because that tomb is empty. And for that, we are so grateful this morning. Father, as we open your word, would you meet us in this place? We have a deep desire to hear from you this morning. Would you speak clearly to us? We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Every year, my family, uh, we take a trip. It's the six of us, along with uh, my father-in-law and my mother-in-law. And so eight people uh, together, and we usually try to pick a city in the United States to travel to. And we spend a couple days and we try to take in all that the city has to offer. And we'll go to uh, different uh, parks and zoos and all kinds of different things. A few years back, we decided to go and visit St. Louis. And when we got there, we took in everything that the city had to offer. We went to the Arch and spent time down at Bush Stadium. And we went to the zoo and uh, just really enjoyed our time in the city. But before we got there, we were told by numerous people that one of the things we needed to make sure that we did was to visit the city museum. Now, if you've been to St. Louis, you've probably heard this as well, but I hadn't been and I didn't know because at the time we had three of our four children and I thought a museum isn't the place to captivate a child's attention all the time. But nonetheless, we decided to give it a try. And boy, am I glad that we did. This place is incredible. I mean, it has slides and it has ball pits and it has swings and it has obstacles. It even has this giant cave system that you can run and explore uh, with your kids all indoors and going outdoors and on top of a building. It's rather incredible, to be honest with you. In fact, when we got done, I was so tired and completely exhausted from exploring this place. The best place, the best thing about the city museum, though, 
is that this incredible wonderland, this incredible playground, this incredible museum is built completely out of junk. The junk of the city of St. Louis that was once discarded and left for waste is now brought together. It, the entire museum is composed of junk, things that were demolished, abandoned, left behind. You have concrete, rebar, rusty gears, cinder blocks, ceiling panels, broken tiles, broken bottles, all things that were thrown aside to be trashed. But the builders of the city museum, they didn't see it that way. They saw all of this junk and envisioned a masterpiece to be built. They saw this trash that was left for nothing and had a vision for an incredible giant playground for children and adults. That's the story of Easter. That's the story of the resurrection. This is why the Bible says of our lives that we are God's masterpiece created in Christ Jesus. One time we were junk and we have all kinds of issues and our sin just made us filthy. But God didn't see us that way. He saw us as having potential to be a masterpiece composed by grace. If you've been with us uh, the last few weeks here online or the last few months even in person here, you know that we've been studying through the book of Acts. And we planned this sermon series last year. And just so happens that today, this Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be studying chapter 9 in the book of Acts together. We're going to be looking at the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, or you might know him better as the Apostle Paul. Paul's story is very similar to that of the city museum. He'll write later on, as we studied last year in the book of Philippians and in other places like 1 Timothy, he says, hey, I've accomplished quite a bit in my life. But even he would consider his accomplishments as rubbish or as trash. But it wasn't just the accomplishments. He says in 1 Timothy that he was the chief of all sinners. He had a lot of problems, a lot of things that he had done wrong. We first introduced to him in chapter 7, where in chapter 7 of the book of Acts, he stands by and watches Stephen, an innocent man, killed for proclaiming the truth of the resurrection. And this is a, a man who sat back and watched in a rage as uh, people were attacking Christians. He sat back and allowed these things to happen, but now his anger and his frustration is boiling over to the point where he goes and seeks permission to continue to put an end to the movement of Jesus. So before we get to the text, though, if you have your Bible, you can open it to Acts chapter 9. But before we get to this text, before we begin to study Acts chapter 9, I want to give you a couple things to keep in mind for yourself. As we study this, it's pretty incredible. Uh, this guy's life is so transformed by the gospel in this incredibly dramatic way. And the temptation is for many of us to sit back and say, I don't have Saul's story. I didn't come to Christ in some big dramatic way. And so I want you to remember this. As we study through this, remember this is one of many conversion stories in the book of Acts. Let me give you a couple of examples. In chapter 8, we, have, uh, we see this African official who is converted to Christ on the side of a road. Who, he's baptized into Christ right on the side of a road because of a conversation he has with a hitchhiker named Philip. Later on in chapter 16, we're going to see a group of women gathered by a body of water to pray when they encounter someone who explains the gospel to them, Paul and his companions. And one of these women happens to be, one of these women happened to be a successful businesswoman named Lydia. And after some conversation and some going back and forth, she comes to understand Jesus and she too gets her life to Christ. See, whether it's quiet and a little bit more reserved or big and dramatic like Saul, 
the one thing all of the conversion stories in the book of Acts have in common is the resurrection of Jesus. These people were living their lives in one direction. They'd encountered the truth that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus was the Messiah. He did die for their sins. He did defeat death so they could be reunited to God. And after some wrestling intellectually and emotionally, they all come to the same conclusion that Jesus changes everything. The resurrection, Easter, Resurrection Sunday changed everything for them. So let's see how God uh, takes this angry, zealous man and transforms his life. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, any Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now, Saul was a pretty violent and and passionately zealot guy. He was completely opposed to not just Christianity being talked about, but anyone following Jesus whatsoever. In in my own experience, I found the people that get to the point of frustration and really to the point of rage are usually wrestling with something internally. And I think we can see that Saul has been wrestling with this story of Jesus. He'd heard much about it. He had interacted with many of these Christians. I mean, he watched Stephen forgive the people that were killing him, and he's watched how he has uh, tormented and uh, really persecuted these other Christians and how they've responded with nothing but courage. And it makes him more and more frustrated because he doesn't know what to do with it. And so instead of exploring it, he rages out against it. He wants to make sure that the message of Jesus doesn't just slow down or get quiet, but that it's completely eliminated. So he goes to the high priest. He gets permission to go and track down and to hunt down in a very real and, and, and destructive way Christians destroying lives. That's what he wants to do. He wants to put him in prison and even kill him. In fact, in chapter 26, Paul says that he was obsessed with this. This took over his mind. This was something he couldn't focus on anything else but putting an end to Christianity and silencing the Christians altogether until he interacts with Jesus. Now, you've heard me say this before, but where Saul is in this moment Uh, It's really uh, levels the playing field for anyone to say that anyone else is beyond saving. I've had family members that I have prayed for for all 18 years that I've been following Jesus. And it's stories like Saul that tells me that there is hope for them to make a decision as well. I mean, think about it. If you were to sit down and have a cup of coffee, six feet apart, maintaining social distancing with Saul, and you were to ask him certain questions and tell him, What I've heard many times, that man, if God knew, if you only knew what I did, you would understand God couldn't forgive me. There's no way I could be used by God. I've been through so much and I've done so much wrong. Saul might respond to you by saying, hey, have you ever ever killed a Christian? You ever sat back and watched a young innocent person stoned to death because they proclaimed the truth of the resurrection? And if we're honest, we would probably think, no, I haven't. In fact, anyone who would, man, they don't deserve to be used by God in his kingdom. And that's exactly what Saul's doing. Here he is in a fit of rage on his way to destroy the lives of Christians until he meets Jesus. Verse 3. As he went on his way, he approached Damascus. and Suddenly a light from heaven shone all around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. While he's on his way, three things happen to him. 
a light that Paul would later on in the book of Acts, you know, three different times Paul describes this conversion experience in the book of Acts. And, and later on, he offers a little bit more detail. And he describes this light as shining brighter than the sun. So the light shines around them. That's number one. Num number two, the light is so powerful that what takes place is it knocks Paul and all of his companions to the floor. They literally fall on the ground. And while everyone is dusting themselves off and picking themselves up, uh, Paul, or Saul at the time, has a conversation with Jesus who asks him, why are, you, why are you persecuting me? Now, Saul responds the way that any of us would, being blinded by this light, knocked down, everything physically just disoriented. And he asks the question, who are you, Lord? Lord meaning, who are you who's powerful enough to do this? Who, who are you, right? Like, whose voice am I hearing? And I think there's probably somewhat of a, a dramatic pause here before the answer comes crashing down out of heaven. I'm Jesus. I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. I think that that would have just completely rocked Saul's world. Everything that this man had been pursuing with his life, everything he was going after, all of those emotions of rage and frustration and passion, and in his own words, obsession to go after Jesus, to now be confronted with not only hearing the voice of Jesus, not only being confronted with what, were you, what direction are you, what are you doing with your life, but to now come to the realization in this moment, everything I've been opposed to is true. Everything I've told everyone else around me that I would never follow, everyone that, everything that I've been telling everybody can't possibly be true, everything that I've been saying, I would never submit to that truth. Now it is true. And it completely rocked his entire view of the world. His whole worldview was turned upside down. Verse 7 continues. The men who were traveling with him, they stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And catch this part. For three days he was without sight and he neither ate nor drank. Now this strong, zealous leader has got to be led by the hand into Damascus where he sits in a state of mourning. The text tells us he's in a state of mourning and fasting because he's, everything in his life has been turned upside down now by this truth. Man, if this is true, it changes everything in my entire life. Not only that, I am guilty of doing so much wrong. I think in these three days, the weight of his sin was weighing heavy on his heart. It was a moment of mourning and difficulty for him. And three different times he recounts this testimony in the book of Acts. All three times he, he realizes, man, my sin was so heavy. And now he realizes it's separating him. So for three days he has to wait. He was told, and he'll tell us later on in chapter 26, he was told that his life was going to be used. So he, he, didn't, he, he had confidence he wasn't going to die, but he didn't know beyond that what exactly is about to happen. And so for three days he waits. Maybe some of you have experienced this kind of waiting, this kind of prodding. You've, you've felt God pushing and leaning on you a little bit. You've felt him moving all around you. And look, sometimes uh, that comes in the form of questions. I mean, we start questioning. Uh, what about life and what about death? I, I know for me, it came in the form of like, wait, what's my purpose? 17 years old and I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in a pickup truck next to the, the local youth minister and I come to this conclusion and I, I I, I realized the resurrection is true because I wrestled through so many questions with him. Other times it comes joyfully and simply like with Lydia in Acts 16. I mean, just asking questions, seeking the Lord, and it leads to you. But then there are those times where it's painful. 
where you're faced with the reality that your life has been headed in a direction, that direction is not the right direction. I mean, that could be hard. And we get dragged maybe a little bit into Christianity, kind of kicking and screaming. Like Saul, it's painful, and we resist it with everything that we can. C.S. Lewis is one of my favorite authors, and he was um, an atheist literature professor at Oxford when he came uh, to know who Jesus was, to, to believe in Jesus. And he describes it. One of the things he writes a lot about was that he could see through his whole life how God had been moving and directing things. Many of us who are Christians would say the same thing, man. Now looking back, certain things make more sense than they ever did before. I mean, God was working and moving in so many different ways all around me. And C.S. Lewis describes that same thing. And yet he also describes it as pretty painful. And in his book, Surprised by Joy, which I would highly recommend, He calls himself the most dejected, reluctant convert in all of England. Drug into the kingdom, kicking, struggling, resentful, and darting his eyes in every direction for a chance at escape. Many of you may be familiar or you've seen the movies or you've read the books of his famous work, The Chronicles of Narnia. Well, in the third book, which is actually really the fifth book in the order of The Chronicles of Narnia, it's called The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. He shares the story of Eustace. And many people would say uh, the story of Eustace in the Voyage of the Dawn Treader is really C.S. Lewis telling his own story. And he writes it in Eustace's voice, but he writes uh, these words about Eustace who had developed this evil heart and he'd become a dragon, but now he didn't want to be the dragon anymore. And so he goes to Aslan who represents Jesus and he says, you have to wash in this pure water to get the scales to come off of you. Eustace says this, The water was as clear as anything, and I thought if I could just get in there and bathe, it would ease the pain. But the lion, he told me that I must undress first, and so I started unscathing myself, and my scales began coming off all over the place. And then I scratched a little deeper, and instead of just the scales coming off here and there, my whole skin started to peel off beautifully. In a minute or two, I just stepped out of it. I could see it lying over there beside me, looking rather nasty. It was mostly lovely feeling, so I started to go down into the well uh, for my bath. But just as I was going in to put my feet in the water, I looked down and I saw that the skin on my feet was all hard and rough and wrinkled and scaly, just as it had been before. So he repeats this process multiple times and gets pretty despaired. And then the lion said, you still have to let you, you must have me undress you first. I was afraid of his claws, I can tell you. But I was pretty nearly desperate now. So I just lay flat down on my back and let him do it. The very first tear he made was so deep that I thought that it had gone right to my heart. And then he began pulling the skin off. It hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. He peeled the beastly stuff right off. Just as I thought I'd done it myself the other three times, only they hadn't hurt And there it was lying on the grass, only ever so much thicker and darker and more knobbly looking than all the others had been. And then he got a hold of me and I didn't like that very much because I was very tender underneath now that I had no skin on. And he threw me into the water. It smelled, but only for a moment. After that, it became perfectly delicious. And as soon as I started swimming and splashing, I found that all my pain had gone. And then I saw why. I'd turned into a boy again. See, what Eustace experienced, what Lewis experienced, is what Paul is experiencing. He's coming to terms with the fact that Jesus really did resurrect.
and he needs to respond, and maybe you're in that same place. It's painful, it's hard, those scales getting ripped off, that sin uh, that needs to come off, you come fully aware of it, that you can't do this by yourself, that you can't save yourself. No matter how much peeling you do of your past, of the guilt and the shame that you felt. And the question is, are you listening? And Saul was listening. Look down at verse 17 in Acts chapter 9. It says, So Ananias departed and entered the house. Laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized. And taking food, he was strengthened. You see, technically, prior to this, Saul hadn't been converted. He'd been presented with the truth. He'd wrestled with the truth. And he sat mourning his life in guilt and shame for three days. He realized, like Eustace in the Chronicles of Narnia, he couldn't get the scales to come off on his own. Well, then this young preacher, Ananias, arrives to tell him what's going on. And, and actually, uh, Ananias was reluctant to come at all. I mean, he wrestled with, do I show up and kill this guy? Or do I show up and actually do what you're asking me to do, Lord? And the Lord told him, I want you to tell him uh, what it means to suffer for my name. I want you to present the gospel to him. So Ananias shows up and he does that. And he tells him, two things are going to happen to you, Saul. You're going to regain your sight, and you're going to then be given the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, the scales fall off of his eyes, and he, and he regains his sight. And then Paul will tell us later on in Acts chapter 22, that Ananias then told him these words. He says, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Here's a man who was adamantly and passionately opposed to Jesus, and then confronted with the truth. And realized that the junk of his life, like that at the city museum, the junk of his life, if he'd let him, man, God would build a masterpiece from it. Saul realized at that moment he needed a second chance. He needed another chance at life. And Ananias explained to him, that's exactly the work that Jesus is in. He's in the business of giving people another chance. Last week I heard a story uh, from a preacher and he told the story of Mel Gibson when he directed the movie, uh, The Passion of the Christ. When this movie came out, Mel Gibson had decided to make this movie. Many people opposed it because they didn't think a man like Mel Gibson should be directing a movie about the life of Jesus. He had multiple divorces, battling alcoholism. He'd been in many public displays of humiliation and, and even got into a fight with a police officer at one point. And so everybody thought, man, of anybody making this movie, it shouldn't be Mel Gibson. But maybe his life is exactly the life that should be depicting the need for grace. Well, another uh, actor that you may be familiar with, whose name is Robert Downey Jr., who's famous for playing Iron Man in the Avengers movies and many other movies. Uh, back in 2011, he was given a Lifetime Achievement Award by his uh, fellow Hollywood movie stars. And they told him when he received this award that he could pick anybody he wanted to present him the award that night. And this is what Robert Downey Jr. said, whose life was also depicted by all kinds of horrible public humiliation. He, he said these words, when I couldn't get sober, Mel Gibson told me not to give up hope and to find my faith. I couldn't get hired, so he cast me in the lead of a movie that was actually developed for him. Most importantly, he said, if I accepted responsibility for my wrongdoing and I embraced that part of my soul that was ugly, hugging the cactus, as he calls it, then I could become a man. I did it, and it worked. 
All Mel asked was that someday I help the next guy in some small way. It's reasonable to assume at the time he didn't imagine that the next guy would be him or that someday would be tonight. So on this special occasion, I would ask that you join me in forgiving my, my friend his trespasses and offer him the same clean slate that you've given to me. He's hugged the cactus long enough. See, the story of Easter is that God has never asked us to hug the cactus. He hugged it for us. And he wants to give us that second chance. He wants to take the junk of our life, our shame and our guilt, and build a masterpiece. And all we have to do is respond to the words that Ananias offered to Saul. What are you waiting for? Stand up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. As we close out today, I want you to check out a video that's going to show the story of some of the people who call New Hope home and the difference that the resurrection has made in their life. Friends, I want you to know from my family to yours, Happy Easter.